answer some pretty tough questions from Vermont right now about basically what the fuck. Right, but I mean, still, even still, from their perspective, um, I, they, I mean, come on, let's face it. Yeah, what happened yesterday? Ooh, I'm a bad guy. I tried to escape, but um, let's be honest. Nobody really thought I was a good guy before that, so. <laughs> it's not like me escaping suddenly makes me untrustworthy. I was kind of untrustworthy before that, so. <laughs>
And then after striking out with that newspaper guy that I told you about in the last part, he found himself walking down the courier's hallway into their bedroom. He woke them up pointing a gun at them and then zip tied them in what he claims was a matter of about six seconds. Um, he likes to call these things, quote, blitz attacks. Which, ugh, okay, all right, geese. He took Lorraine's loaded 38 from the nightstand, made the couple lay on the bed on their stomachs, and zip-tied their wrists. And while he was looking through all their shit, Lorraine tried to make a run for it, and she rolled off the bed, but he caught her and shoved her face into a pillow, telling her that if she tried that again, he, quote, wouldn't be happy. In their guest room, he found an electric strawberry, which was a military insignia for the Army's 25th Infantry Division. Um, so he tells Bill, like, oh, wow, we served in the same unit. And Bill's like, okay, cool. Maybe this will change things because, you know, we have this connection here. Um, shortly after, he has them put on their slippers so they don't cut their feet and, you know, leave blood everywhere on the way to their own Saturn, which was parked in their garage. He puts them in the car, drives them to this uh, old abandoned farmhouse off of Vermont's Route 15 and tells them that it's just a kidnapping for ransom. Like, don't worry about it. Um, I'm going to go drop you off at this house and someone else is going to take over. I'm just, this is just for ransom. False. He took Bill to the basement with Lorraine restrained in the front seat of the car and he tied him to a stool. He goes out to get Lorraine and she's already out of the car and she sees him come out and she like takes off running toward the road. But he tackles her, gets her inside, and was so pissed that she almost got away. And uh, he's, like, aggressively restraining her because he's so mad that these people are, you know, fighting for their lives. So he uses rope and duct tape to restrain her to this bed. And the whole time, Bill is in the basement yelling, where's my wife? Where's my wife? Which is uh, heart-shattering. Well, Lorraine was fighting hard. Uh, he goes back down to the basement and Bill has almost worked his way free from the stool and he starts pushing Keys around and then Keys is livid because his plan was actually to rape Bill. This That's Dexter having a nightmare. I'm telling this story and he's probably having a nightmare about it. I know, buddy. I know. Uh, so he's like really pissed because he wanted to rape this guy and nothing is going according to his plan. And if we know anything about Keys, uh, if we, I'm not sure that anybody could, but according to him, he has to be in control at all times. So this has like really thrown a wrench into things because um, his only like preference for victims is lightweight. Like, that's it. You know, he, um, really, it's anybody, male, female, doesn't matter what race, doesn't matter what, like, class, doesn't matter. Um, it's all convenience. So the location was chosen out of convenience. Bill and Lorraine's home was chosen because it was a ranch. It was, um, you know, there was no dogs. There didn't seem to be any children. So he didn't really know. He had he had never seen these people before. Didn't know what he was uh, going to get into. He just kind of gathered by his quick little stakeout that it was like an older couple. So he didn't expect Bill to be fighting back. And he didn't expect Lorraine to be fighting back. But they were. Um, so he's all pissed off about this. And he takes a shovel that he found in the basement and he hits Bill with it. But Bill was kind of like, um... Uh, what else you got, you little bitch? Like, that. that's it? So Keys had to hit him a second time before he could get him to the ground. And he has to leave him unattended for a minute. And when he gets back, Bill is up again. And he ends up shooting Bill in the arm, head, neck, and chest. And Bill was still standing. But sadly for Bill, he finally did fall. And uh, Keys went outside to smoke a cigar. She got just so douchey. Like, I can't. Every time he's telling his stories and it's like, I went to smoke a cigar. Like, can you just smoke a cigarette? Can you just, can you maybe just get like a Marlboro Red or something? I, I don't know why it bothers me. It's irrational, but it does. 
he would actually like grind those into the earth with his heel when he was done until it was basically pulverized to avoid like any detection, any trace, you know, because he, his pride and joy is that he leaves no DNA, no trace, uh, nothing to any of these places that he goes to. So I just wanted to mention whenever I'm saying that he's smoking cigars, you might be like, what's he doing? Like with the butts or whatever cigars have, I don't know. Cause I'm not a douchebag. I don't smoke cigars. I don't smoke cigarettes anymore either. Just so you know, I quit. So snaps for me. Uh, so he went back upstairs to Lorraine, cut off her clothes, gagged her and raped her twice. But during the second time he choked her just until she would lose consciousness. Um, he wasn't, it wasn't his intent at that point to murder her. He just wanted her to lose consciousness so that he could, you know, control everything. When she came to, he took her downstairs to see her husband in his own blood. And he put on leather batting gloves that he always wore, moved behind Lorraine and strangled her with a rope. He placed Bill and Lorraine near each other, cut off their zip ties, poured Drano over them and put them in 55 gallon trash bags before finally putting a bunch of rubbish on top of them. Um, because his plan was to set the house on fire, but it was now too light outside. Um, so he's like, well, I'll come back, um, later on like a year and collect their remains. Uh, you might be saying what a year, huh? His logic was what's going to smell so bad. It's going to keep anybody from wanting to come in here because it's an old shitty farmhouse and it stinks. So like nobody's going to, they don't want to come near that and someone's going to buy the property and tear it down and that'll take care of that. Or, uh, people will think that it's dead animal. So they'll be like, no biggie. And then he just off he went like, that was it. Uh, took their car back to the Rite Aid parking lot where he had left his own car and drove off to Maine. Uh, now, George Murdy, which was the Essex officer who was working the courier case, he says that the people who came to demolish the farmhouse, because as I stated, um, yeah, it got bulldozed, uh, they go to the house and they immediately said it smelled of decomposition so bad that they just demolished everything without going in. Maybe, perhaps, maybe give that a second thought, like perhaps call someone in. I I don't know. Maybe that's just our true crime minds. Um, but their solution was just, we're not going to worry about it. Uh, all the rubble was taken to the landfill and following search after search, authorities let the family know that they were calling off the search um, because obviously Israel Keys told them, you know, so they put two and two together and they went to the landfill. Um, to this day, their bodies have never been recovered. Um, Keys actually requested to see the crime scene photos of the bodies, um, as like proof that they had been found. So Kevin Feldis asked him like, why do you want to see these pictures? You know, uh, it's like, for what, what's your reasoning? It's been over a year. And Keys was like, well, because that's how I'm going to make sure that you found the bodies. Please shut the hell up. Like nobody is buying that. Like everybody knows it's because you're disgusting and you want to sit there and rub yourself. Um, and I say that because in his interviews, when he started talking about his crimes, he would like rub himself, um, like his arms, he would rub his arms, like, um, just against himself. I don't know how to explain it. You would have to watch these tapes, but he like jingles and jangles and gets really excitable. He has a lot of physical tells that he's basically getting off on this stuff, um, without being able to get off on it. You know, it's disgusting. So, uh, during his telling of the career murders to investigators, he said, quote, the one thing I won't do is mess with kids, but, um, let me tell you a story. When Keyes' girlfriend in Anchorage, when her basement was searched, they found um, two computers. It was a laptop that was his and like a, you know, personal computer, like a, a tower computer, desktop, I guess I should say, of his girlfriend's. 
And Keyes told them that he had another laptop, but he smashed it with a hammer and took that to the landfill around the same time that he had abducted Samantha Koenig. So, my God, what was on that? If Israel Keyes decides that he needs to smash something and take it to the landfill, like, disturbing. Because what was on uh, the computer that he didn't smash were hundreds of images of just missing people. Kids, men, women, varying body types, varying races, like any and all. Um, And I shouldn't say that they were hundreds of images of missing people. They were just hundreds of images of people who the majority of were connected um, to missing persons cases, like the flyers or the articles, and they could match up the picture. So a lot of them were active missing persons cases, including children that he had all these pictures of. Um, In fact, he had pictures of Samantha Koenig and there were so many pictures of her that investigators thought that maybe he had stalked her uh, before choosing her, which, you know, he says, no, it's all just convenience. He'd never met these people before, but there, it was like a shrine almost. Um, so we're not, the only way that we know that he didn't mess with kids is by what he said. And he's a liar. So, um, I mean, there are things that he has said and volunteered that have been verified, confirmed true, but there's also things that he's slipped up about just little discrepancies here and there. Um, or, you know, flat out lies. And so it's hard. Like you want to believe that stuff. Um, I do. I certainly want to believe that he did not hurt children, especially after his daughter was born. Um, But as we will find, some of his victims were in fact children. Um, So that's uh, really disturbing. And I lost my place and I apologize because I clicked something um, that adjusted the whole format. So I wish sometimes in these, in these moments, I wish I had a co-host to, um, distract from these. So anyway, uh, Keyes is a loose possible person of interest in the murders of a mother, 47-year-old Nancy Bokikio and her seven-year-old daughter, Joey, at the Town Center Mall in Boca Raton, Florida. On December 12th, 2007, they were out doing some Christmas shopping before Joey was supposed to go and practice her Christmas play lines because she was going to be a reindeer. Um, They were both found in their vehicle, bound by duct tape, plastic ties, handcuffs, and goggles, both shot in the head, a single bullet to the head, both of them. Um, The Boca Raton uh, police captain, Matthew, I believe it's Dugan, he said that the suspect, uh, quote, he came with what he would refer to as his kit. He had all the stuff he needed. He was prepared for this. Again, I say alarm bell uh, because... uh, kit he called it his kit okay um aside from that why would this be a connection because in august of that year a woman had been shopping at the mall with her two-year-old son and was carjacked and the person binds her with handcuffs and zip ties and puts goggles on her he drives them around for hours and forces her to go to an atm alarm bell too But then he does weird stuff like he has her call her child's father and tell him that her truck broke down and to come pick her up. And he zip ties her head to the headrest. And he's like, tell the cops that I'm short, fat, and black. Um, He was none of those things. He was a tall, athletic white guy with long, wavy brown hair worn in a ponytail. And he was wearing driving gloves. Um, I think I just said gloves. He was wearing driving gloves, perhaps leather batting gloves. I know that I would think that leather batting gloves would look, why do I keep saying gloves? They would look similar to driving gloves to me. Um, but he leaves her bound in the seat and he, 
he just leaves. Uh, just nothing. Nobody's hurt. Just leaves. Uh, not before warning her, though, that if he does see anything on the news about him or his description or anything like that, he will come after her. So she manages to get herself released, and she drives over to this little, like, security station and reports the kidnapping. But guess what? They were like, okay, your your story is weird. Uh, they didn't fucking believe her because there were no witnesses and no evidence in the car. So they asked her to take a lie detector test. <sighs> It makes me so angry, a lie detector test. But she was like, yeah, I have like nothing to hide. Like, why would I come and make up this lie, you absolute bumbling morons? So when they needed her a few months later, they called her up and they were like, oh, hey, um, you're kind of our only help in this unsolved case from several months before your abduction that we didn't believe you about. Uh, when 52-year-old Randy Gorenberg was found murdered at the same mall. Investigators would later find that Nancy and the abduction survivor were both taken to the same ATM. They find tons of similarities between the two cases, actually. And when the survivor gives her description of the man for a sketch artist, um, you're going to want to look at it. I will post the picture on the Instagram. Um, the sketch, like, he has this, like, floppy, goofy-looking hat on. Um, and I think it's supposed to be more of a green color like an army green color if you will uh, and I think that they find later that the hat was like a military maybe issued hat or something so interesting um but yeah I will post that on there so you can take a look at that because you're going to want to see it but remember listen do you remember how um she said that he had a long ponytail and she was kind of like why would you have that mangy thing? Like you could just tuck your long brown wavy hair underneath your hat because it's fucking August in Florida. Like, why do you have that sticking to you? Um, important to note is that Israel Keys was branded with a pentagram on the back of his neck. So could be. Um, and, you know, I will say here, I feel like Israel Keys is just this like, um, true crime community like unicorn for lack of a better term and I don't want that to come off as um like distasteful I don't mean it in a positive way I mean it as a lot of unsolved cases a lot of missing persons cases people like to just say oh that was probably Israel Keys because if there's any sort of connection there they're going to make it and that could be what this is um because this is not really his usual style, if you will, from the things that investigators did find out and did confirm. And it was, you know, not just like their suspicions. And he typically, uh, like he said, knives are his preferred weapon. Um, he mostly strangled the victims that he told about and investigators knew about and, you know, found uh, like Samantha um, so it is like, I'm kind of torn down the middle. It all seems very good, especially when you look at the sketch, um, because it was Florida. He probably maybe had a bit of a tan. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, but I don't know because I don't want to believe that he shot a seven-year-old kid. And as I was saying those words, I was like, ooh, that sounds like I'm being, like, favored. You know, I'm, like, I want to defend him or something. That's not what I mean. I don't want to think about anybody shooting a seven-year-old child. And since he has said, like, I don't mess with kids, I would like to think that. Because I would like nobody to mess with children. Um, but it just doesn't fit his typical, you know, he's not, he only shot Bill because Bill was going to beat his ass. So, anyway, it's just... Something interesting you might want to look into. Now, the FBI claims uh, that his exact location during these crimes isn't known, uh, but they do know that he was traveling during this time. So we will leave that at that. And you might be wondering why I say claims. Um, meh, I don't know. So during these investigations, um, 
Keyes, you know, did give some information about some other potential crimes. And I say potential crimes because there's no way to know at this point. Nothing has ever been confirmed um, or found or yeah, he's dead. He's gone. I said that last time. You already know it's coming. So there was no way to really know if this was bullshit or not, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, this is all just stuff coming from him. So I'm going to kind of talk about a few of those. Um, in Washington state, he told investigators like, yeah, there's four bodies there. Um, and I don't remember their names or anything like that, which mm, I bet you do. Uh, there was two on one side of the state and two on the other. Two victims were murdered um, sometime between July of 2001 and 2005. It's a pretty, pretty broad range. Um, they were murdered together and two were killed separately in either the summer or the fall of 2005. So Keyes had purchased this Bayliner boat from his daughter's mother's ex-husband actually and he used this boat he said to dispose of at least one but maybe two again like you don't remember I know I know you do in Lake Crescent which was one of the deepest lakes in Washington um I believe that at like its lowest point it's like 700 feet deep <laughs> um so that'd be a good place to dispose of a body I would say if you were going to do it in the water um when investigators requested a search of this lake to try and recover the body or the bodies after um, Keyes was dead, the FBI said, we don't want to give any funds for that. And to that I say, all righty, uh, <laughs> why? Like, this is me talking to you, FBI, because I know you're listening. Why? It seems weird um, because the condition the climate there the type of water some specialist or expert or something I don't know in Maureen Callahan's book American Predator said that the bodies would be able to be preserved more than usual um like normally because of marine life and things like that in the water everything decomposes a lot more rapidly but in this particular body of water um the bodies would probably stay a little bit more preserved. And the FBI was like, no, no, we don't want to give any money to that. So anyway, um, investigators also believe that he's full of shit because like I said, he remembers um, almost every single detail of his crimes and he gets all squiggly and rubs himself when he talks about it. Uh, but with this, he's like very vague, broad timelines. And so they start thinking, is he moving dates around to throw us off like why would he do that? You know, is he worried about the victims being identified? Um, maybe because his cell phone records put him in the area of a double murder on July 11th, 2006. It, um, four hikers, which were, oh, Phoebe's here. Phoebe's here. Say hi. <sighs> I just want to keep going, but I'm waiting to see if I can keep going. No. Mm -mm. no, can't keep going. Okay, got that taken care of. So, um, yeah, his cell phone records, they put him in the area of that double murder in July of 2006. It was four hikers. <laughs> that was Dexter. Oh my god, you guys are going to love this episode. Um, four hikers were comprised of a husband and a wife and a mother and a daughter. Um, the husband and wife had stopped for lunch and um, ran into this mother and daughter. So like they had all like ran into each other earlier. I don't think that they knew each other before the hike. I think it was like they just bumped into each other and you know you see someone on the trail and you're like hi and you start talking or uh like whatever I don't know um I was at the cemetery like two weeks ago walking my dog and somebody else was there 
um, a husband and a wife, they were walking their dog and they came over and we had a nice chat. So, you know, it's probably one of those things. Um, but like later on, after they have the lunch, they see the mother and daughter again and they are along this trail and they're squatting along the trail and they're like, well, that's weird. Like, what are you guys looking at? Um, but they were actually dead and had been posed like that. And so the husband and wife have to like 30 minutes still to hike, to get back down to the trailhead, just to alert someone. Could you imagine the terror of that? Like it, I, um, when I'm researching these things, because I know that sometimes when I'm reading this stuff, it probably seems like I am very callous. Like, Megan, why are you laughing at the fact that your dog is click clacking around? Like I'm laughing because these animals don't make a noise for 12 hours. And then as soon as I try to do this, they do that. Um, like, how can you be so disconnected from what you're talking about. It's because when I'm researching this stuff, I let myself go through the deepest feelings about it. Um, like sometimes it's a, sometimes it takes me a while to get these things done. Um, more so the TikTok videos, if you follow along with those, um, because it becomes so consuming when you're reading this stuff that it's like overwhelming. Like sometimes I have a hard time, like I need to take a deep breath and I can't get it. And I realize it's anxiety. That's like something that happens to me when I'm anxious is I can't, I feel like I have to yawn or something and I can't like get that like cleansing breath. Um, so I go through all that stuff when I'm doing this and this particular story, um, really I was like, Oh God, because I, I go out and I hike so much or, you know, I'm not like a cross country hiker, but like I go to the woods several times a week on average. Um, like even when it's winter time, I just went yesterday. What is today? Yeah. Yesterday. Um, went out with my dog in the snow. Like nobody's out there. So there could definitely be somebody else out there and I could be somebody posed along the trail or I could run into that or just, I don't know how I got off on this tangent, but the point is, um, I thought about it deeply as to how that would affect me if I saw someone like that while I was out there because you're out in the middle of the woods and it is so quiet and there's no one around. And some of the spots that I go to, I don't have service on my phone. Um, I try to avoid those areas because, hello, uh, true crime podcast. So, you know, I carry like my personal alarm. Um, she's birdie. Shout out. If Do you guys want to... Do you want to sponsor? Because I use your product. I would definitely talk about it. Um, so, you know, I like, I try to take precautions because imagine finding that and then wondering like, is this person still out there who has, is this monster who has done this still out there? Like in my next, or I just don't know what they were thinking, but they uh, had about 30 minutes to think about it together uh, to run down to this trailhead and it ended up being Mary Cooper, who was 56 years old, and her daughter, Susanna Stodden, she was 27, uh, and they were both shot in the head with a 22, which we know was a caliber that Israel Keys has used before. Uh, for about three hours the day that Mary and Susanna were killed, there was no activity on Israel Keys' phone. And he liked to take the battery out whenever he was like prepping for or committing crimes. So that kind of became like a tell when they were investigating stuff, his phone would just go off the grid. It would go dark and they could kind of use that to like align him up with these crimes. So they think that he was responsible for that. But again, he didn't give any names and, um, you know, it's never been completely verified. Um, but while telling about this stuff, he goes back and starts talking about, um, one of his first crimes. And it was the summer after his family had moved to Oregon. So, you know, he stayed for like a month or so in Washington, the family moved to Oregon and then he joined them later on. So it was this time, but it was the summer after that. Um, he was like about 19, 18, 19, and he was at this beach 
and he decided that he was going to abduct someone. Um, but he had been thinking about doing it for years. Okay. That's what he told investigators. Um, so you're only like 18 or 19 and you've already been thinking about this for years and years. Okay. Seems a bit, uh, extreme, but he also already had some kits at that age, already had his kits ready. So he hides in some trees waiting for people to come by on inner tubes. And about four to five teenagers came through. And this one girl was like further back in her inner tube. And she was kind of alone. Like her friends were floating up um, you know, a big gap between them. So he just jumps out and grabs her. And then when they ask him, like, what was her age? He's like, um, I don't know, anywhere from 14 to 18. Mm. So a child is real keys. Is that what you meant? You meant you abducted and sexually assaulted a child? Um, I know 18 is like an adult legally. I don't really consider an 18-year-old to be an adult, but he was probably 19 at this time, 18 or 19. Um, so you're an adult. You're legally an adult. And I'm going to assume that the girl that you got was not 18, probably closer to 14, which is a child. Um, and I know that because I have one and I just keep like hitting this home because I personally think that he was so adamant about saying, Oh, I don't mess with kids. That's the one thing I don't do. I don't mess with kids because he had a kid and he didn't want his kid to find out that he did in fact mess with kids. Um, so this was not the first time that he sexually assaulted someone, but it was the first time that he quote, took it to that level aka gonna kill somebody. Um, he took this girl to this tiny bathroom. He had already scoped these kind of offset bathrooms away from all of the beachgoers because it had a concrete tank underneath and he was looking for someone small and lightweight so that he could shove them down into the tank when he was finished. Um, he's like, it's really dark down there and I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't have been found for, you know, probably a year or so. Uh, he took a rope and roped her neck to a bar in the handicap stall. So, you know, in handicap accessible stalls, they have like the silver bars along the side of the wall. He tied her to that and he tied her arms out. When special agent Jolene Godin asked Keys if he had cut the girl with any of his knives, he said, no, even though I had all my knives with me, um, I probably would have just choked her, but I didn't cut her. So when Godin asked what stopped him, he said either the girl had already experienced some sort of sexual assault, which is like completely gut-wrenching, um, or she had considered what to do if this ever happened to her because she knew exactly what to say. And she kept talking and she kept telling him like, you don't need to do this. You're attractive. I would date you. It's not really that big of a deal what you're doing. You can just let me go because um, I'm not going to tell anybody. And according to Keys, she didn't really act fearful, which made it probably not as much fun for him. Um, and he keeps telling her to shut up, but she wouldn't. She keeps talking. She tells him her name. And basically this girl, more than likely this child, did everything that she could to make herself seen as a human. And when he was finished raping her, he took her back to her inner tube and gave her a push into the water. Um, could you imagine? Could you imagine? I can because I just recently as an adult floated down this exact situation. It was a creek, not a river. Um, luckily, I'm not lightweight, but you're just floating along and then some fucking creep jumps out of the bushes. It's terrifying enough. But then after all of that happens and you just went through all of that trauma, you have to get back on your inner tube and just float down. And your friends are going to be like, hey, where have you been? <sighs> Stress stresses me out. After this, he says, though, that he fully regretted not killing her because he was paranoid for like, Months after, he's like, okay, I'm going to see something. She's going to tell somebody. My name's going to pop up somewhere. Um, my face is going to pop up somewhere, you know, whatever. But it never did. And when investigators hinted at the fact that 
maybe he never let anybody else live again then. He just kind of, you know, does his gross chuckle and um, indicates that maybe, um, I believe, if I remember correctly, in Maureen Callahan's book, An American Predator, um, he says, well, and just kind of like leaves it open-ended. Um, but a couple of, sorry about my chair squeak, a couple of other um, missing people who were unfortunately found later deceased, they haven't completely ruled him out as a suspect. They haven't, you know, been able to tie him completely to these cases. But Julie Harris um, was a 12-year-old in 1996 who Um, She was a double amputee and she wore prosthetic feet. She was in the Special Olympics and had won medals and, you know, was just this bright, really fun little girl who had already accomplished so much. And um, she went missing from Colville when Keyes would have been about 18. Um, Her feet were later found by the Colville River and her remains were found about three miles from Colville in the woods in 1997. Um, and there's not too much, um, detail that I have about that. You know, they asked him about it and he's like adamant that he, no, uh-uh, didn't have anything to do with her or her disappearance. But I think I've read that there are reports that, um, people did see them, you know, they saw him talking to her. They, they had been seen together before, so Uh, He was probably a liar, and um, it's sad because he's gone now. So, you know, we'll never know if he would have, he probably would have never said anything anyway, but if he would have ever decided to bring closure to the families that he said he didn't care about giving, um, if he had a change of heart at some point, we'll never know. Um, Cassie Emerson, who was also 12, went missing in 1997. And this was after arson to the trailer that she lived in with her mother. Her mother's body was found inside. So remember when Keys liked to just go out into the woods and set fires and stuff? Uh, yeah. Her remains were found in a wooded area about 13 minutes from Colville. Um, still, just like Julie, uh, unsolved. Um, Keys, again, adamant. He had no involvement with these, um, but he had already told investigators that his first, like, real crime, not relating to um, sexual assault or murder or anything, his real crime, his first real crime, was setting fire to a trailer. So, <laughs> I do what you will with that. Um, they have also pretty much assumed that he is responsible for the disappearance of Deborah Feldman. She was 49 when she was last seen in Hackensack, New Jersey in 2009. Keys had told investigators that he kidnapped a woman from the East Coast on April 9th, 2009, which is the last day that Deborah was seen, and took this person to New York. And investigators showed him a picture, like they were showing him all of these pictures of missing people, and he was just going through them like, no, No, mm -mm, no. And when they got to Deborah Feldman's picture, he simply said, I don't want to talk about her yet. I'm not ready to talk about her yet. Um, So they pretty much were like, yeah, we need all the information, any connection that she may have had to Israel Keys during this time. Um, And there's, unfortunately and sadly, there's more. um, And there's more information about these more potential victims in Maureen Callahan's book, American Predator. Um, So in May of 2012, so this is like after he's been captured and, you know, they've started their interviews. um, He was in a federal courtroom with eight armed guards, six U.S. marshals, and he broke free from his leg shackles and his stomach chains. (laughs) How did he do that, you ask? Um, Guards had been giving him pencils, which he was using his teeth to grind down into lockpicks. And he would keep the cellophane from his bagged lunch until um, they had to start unwrapping all his food and throwing everything away because he was making fucking weapons with 
cellophane and pencils. Um, nobody was listening to, uh, I believe it was the FBI. Um, the guys that like, I don't want to say got closest to him, but the two FBI, um, investigators that he like felt most comfortable with, or I believe they're both from the FBI. Jeff Bell was an FBI agent. Um, and you hear a lot from him or about him, a little bit from him in um, the book, Maureen Callahan's book, An American Predator. Um, but anyway, Bell was like telling <laughs> these guards and stuff like, you can't give him anything. Like, stop giving him this stuff. Um, you have to unwrap everything. You have to throw everything away because he just used pencils to unlock his leg shackles. And during this attempt at escape, he drags a guard along with him. He's like hopping over the chairs, just like silently, according to the book, um, just leaping across these chairs, like not making a noise, not saying nothing, just making it, shooting a shot. Um, and he drags this guard along with him and then like three other guards and the FBI guys tackle him and they eventually had to tase him because he's, he's like so freakishly strong. Everybody is like, he's this tall, lanky looking guy, but he's freakishly strong, um, which feeds into people's like crazy, um, you know, government plant, super special black ops soldier type, like stuff like that. Um, but that is definitely something that everyone says, like he's super duper weirdly strong. And, um, after they tased him, um, they like, he was out of his cell once and they searched it and they find this letter that was, he's writing to his brother and he's referencing six victims. Um, three were identified as Samantha Koenig and Bill and Lorraine Courier, and they also found this noose made from a bed sheet, like tucked under his mattress or something. And in this letter, he's telling his brother, well, they can't convict a dead man. So the FBI guys are like, hey, could you maybe like stop letting him have razor blades? Um, because he's talking about offing himself and you just found a noose under his bed. Like no more tennis shoes, no shoelaces, no razors, no pencils, no cellophane, like none of that shit. And they were like, okay, got it. This is what we can do. We can tape a note to his cell that says, do not give this inmate a razor. And the FBI was like, uh, like, that's it. It's, it's the best you can do. And prison officials were like, yeah, sorry. That's all we can do. And on December 1st, 2012, a little after 10 p.m., Israel Keys slit his wrist with a razor blade. Go figure. Um, and a noose tied to his left foot that he used to strangle himself as insurance. He scrawled um, in his own blood the word Belize, which investigators believe is a little love note for them. Um, he drew 12 skulls in his own blood and had like his upside down pentagrams and all that stuff uh, with the words, we are one. And he left this like rambly, um, suicide letter and it's got like all this, you know, dumb serial killer stuff that people leave. Um, we don't know that he's a serial killer, but you know how they like to do that. They, like they love to write poetry. Um, but it was covered in so much blood that it was, most of it was hard to make out. Um, but a little bit of it was released. I'm not going to read it because fuck off Israel keys. Um, but you can find it out there online. Um, but there's a lot of speculation and theories about him being trained in the army as a sniper. Like I said, he was like this, uh, a black ops, you know, super soldier. There's myths and theories that he's not dead, uh, that he was transferred somewhere else to be like tortured or that he is dead and the guards helped. Um, you know, just like all kinds of stuff and you can read about it until your eyes cross if you are interested in that. Um, again, I know that I've been making jokes by using my little voice about Maureen's book. Um, but I do definitely recommend reading it and it is written in kind of like a strange manner. 
um, for an account of true crime. Um, I don't know how else to explain it. You would just have to read it. But it has so much information from all of the transcripts. Um, Maureen Callahan's attorney actually sued for copies of these documents under the Freedom of Freedom, excuse me, of Information Act. And like it's crazy nuts. She goes into all kinds of details um about the investigators talking to Israel Keys's army pals and the places that internationally he could have been killing. Um so yeah, like nine out of ten would recommend if you can't tell I really liked it I got a lot of information um and there's all kinds of information in that book more about suspected victims him possibly being a terrorist his career of bank robbery because yeah we didn't even touch on that um how he doesn't believe that Canadian victims count and his possible accomplice because that's right he might have had someone with him helping him the corrupt prison systems in which he was held and how they've never released their uh, secret illegal recordings between him and his attorney or any documents regarding his suicide. Yeah, they've like instructed everybody to keep it under wraps. Like don't keep that secret. Don't ever tell anybody. Um, so yeah, the book has a lot, a lot of stuff that's going to have your mind going like what the actual shit. Um, it's wild wild and even so it's like I'm still a little um skeptical of um like the information that has been shared uh I don't know I don't know it's it's definitely um so yeah um there's so much more that's gonna have your mind going like what? Um, and even so, I'm still a little skeptical of um, some things overall, even with law enforcement. <laughs> um, so you'd have to read it and draw your own conclusion. Um, so that, my friends, is all I have to say about that crusty bucket. And to go check out the sketch of the Boca Raton suspect, you can visit the Instagram page at a pine for true crime. You can send any love notes or hate mail, but I would prefer love notes or stories to a pine podcast at gmail.com. You can consider joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash a pine pod. And lastly, I see that about 69% of you are listening to this on an Apple device. So if you would be so kind as to throw a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be swell and sweet dreams for the second night in a row. Good night.